Hey, well, good morning, good evening, whenever you're watching this. Welcome to the Online Weekend Experience. My name is Aiden, one of the pastors here. Glad that you're watching. Uh, I say this every time, but if, if, you're, if you've been watching online, if this is kind of the way that you interact with us, and I haven't got to meet you before, uh, I, I would love to hear from you. You can email us, norton at gracechurches.com. I'm 98% sure that's the right email, but we'll, we'll get it. Get, it'll get close, right? But I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear that you're watching, maybe hear your story, connect with you in that way. We're going to jump right in. We've been in the series called God Is. We're in the book of Exodus, uh, kind of looking at this passage, this passage where God discloses and explains who he uh, is. And this, this passage that we've been looking at for the last five weeks together uh, is quoted over 20 times throughout uh, the scripture. Prophets and the psalmists, they kind of keep circling back to these character attributes of who God is. And so what we've been looking at is this. We saw in the beginning of Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, is uh, the Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord. We looked at this the first week, that God has a name. He's a personal God, but he's also a powerful God. We kind of live in that tension of the God who we see in Exodus uh, 32 is this, this God on the mountain. He's this, he's this storm on the mountain, the earthquakes and fire and trembling. He's this mighty powerful picture, right, of who God is. But at the same time, he's personal. He has a name. He relates to his people in a personal way. His name is Yahweh, 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 the Lord, right? We saw it the first week. Then we looked at, at this. That the, the next week, we looked at the fact that the first thing he says about himself is that he is compassionate and gracious. That in our language, the first thing you say about yourself is important, you know, the first thing you're communicating, but it was more so in the Hebrew language. The first thing he says, the most important aspect of his character and nature is that he is full of compassion and grace. Then we looked at this, looked that he is slow to anger, which for some of us may make us scratch our heads initially, but as we unpack this, this is something we, we want God to be to be angry, want him to be righteous in this way, right? But God is slow to anger. And sometimes, if we're honest, he's too slow, we think. Tim Keller, uh, the sage, he says this, the Bible never sees God's love and anger as being opposed to each other. Indeed, the Bible tells us that in God, they are meaningless apart from each other. And indeed, they establish one another. We know that to be true, right? If someone, something happens to someone you love, you get angry, right? And so we see that playing out. And then we looked at this last week, that God is abounding in love and faithfulness. And there's a word here, this word hased, that we don't have a word for, right? It's not just God's loving, he's nice, he's around. But it's this deep word, this word, this Hebrew word hased, which Dan kind of gave us these three circles of action, of commitment, and affection. And where those three circles overlap, that's hased. That is what this, this word is communicating, abounding in love and faithfulness. And then for today, what we want to look at is, basically with my clicker, this section right here, maintaining love to thousands. We're going to hit that next week. Next week, we hit the rest of this passage. I know you've been waiting for uh, That goes along with this. But for this week, what we want to look at is he's a God who is forgiving of wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And we, as we read the story of scripture, we see that happening time and time again. People rebelling, people out practicing wickedness, people in, in sin. Like we see this happening time and time again. We see this time and time again in our own lives. And so we want to take a look at that today. And I want you to think about this. There, there are things that we do in our lives, like actions that we, we do. And there's things that are, are just kind of inherent to, to who we are, right? Let's think about this. Pastor Dan, you guys get to hear from a lot. Uh, he, he's very much a coach, right? Like the way that he interacts with us, the way that he teaches, the way he communicates, the way that he dresses a lot of times. Like he's a coach, right? 
And you could say like he's good at coaching and those things for sure, but I think in a bigger sense, he it's who he is. He is a coach, right? Think about one of my good friends, Mike. He does IT and a lot of AVL stuff around here, and he loves to solve problems, whether it's like a computer problem, an audio problem, a technical problem, a mechanical, like he loves to fix things. And so you could say this is something that he does, but I think more so it's, it's who he is, right? Like we see these things play out all the time in different in different senses, right? That there's things about who we are, but there's things about what we do. And sometimes these things about what we do aren't just actions, but they're innate to who we are. That is the picture of the God who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The forgiving God. Forgiveness is not just something that God happens to extend. Forgiving isn't just something he does on the weekends. But forgiving, it's it's core to his nature. It's who he is. And this pattern that we see through the whole Bible, the heart of the gospel, is, is forgiveness. Not because it's a good idea, but it's who God is. If there was, if there was one word to, that we would use, that the, the people of Jesus had to describe the gospel, to describe what we have in Christ, to describe what the highest attribute is, it would be forgiveness. Because of the, our need for forgiveness, but also what we are called to, to extend. But if, if we're honest, we have this conversation often because it shows up in the scriptures often. That's why we talk about it so much. Is that forgiveness is hard. Right? Over the course of this weekend, I'll probably get to talk to, I don't know, roughly 800 people uh, through this message. And that's 800 people's stories. 800 people's unique stories and unique interactions and unique pain and all these things. But the necessity of this, while it's hard to process, the necessity of forgiveness is unchanging. I think we, we've seen this over the last couple years that are at a high level, our nation, our culture, there, we know that there's so much polarization, right? I, <laughs> I remember thinking during a lockdown when we were all separated, I'm like, oh man, we're never going to have to teach on community again because once we all get back together, we'll see how important it is. <laughs> and then as we got back together, I'm like, okay, this is this is a different world we're entering into, right? Because you see the division and kind of the trio in a lot of different ways and opinions grew and all these things at a high level, right? And we see kind of this, this, this prevalence of this cance- cancel culture appearing kind of from every side, right? You have a, a culture that we, our highest value is self. And so when we're wronged, when something kind of tries to dent against that, even when it's valid, it even more so becomes kind of contrary to what we're taught and who we are, right? Whether it's at a national level, some big level in the media, or whether it's a personal level of me and my relationships, forgiveness is hard. Who, who deserves it, right? Is forgiveness just letting go? Is just, just forget it? Just let someone off the hook and just let them do whatever they were doing? Is, is that what it is? Because what if they don't care? What if they haven't repented? What if they haven't changed? Is forgiveness just, is it just therapy? You need to forgive because it's just going to make you feel better? Like, is, is it just therapeutic? And all these conversations about forgiving each other and maybe we're needing someone to forgive us. Sometimes, what if I can't forgive myself? What if, yeah, I believe in Jesus, thankful for the cross. I put my faith in Jesus. I'm a Christian. He's forgiven my sin. But I can't forgive myself. I can't move past what I've done. Like the conversation for everybody is different. I, I want to acknowledge that today. That I, today we may be talking about this and you, there will be very many, but Aiden, what about this? So I acknowledge that. And I don't want to be flipping about any of that. But all of this, all of this, it doesn't, well, forgiveness doesn't matter in that situation. Like that's, that's just never the case. 
in light of the gospel, that's never the case. There is a a quote by she's a she's a journalist. She's she's a believer, um, and she says this, and I think this is this is powerful for kind of the cultural moment that we happen to be in. She says. Her name's Elizabeth Brewing. She says, There is something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. She says, As a society, we have absolutely no coherent story, none whatsoever, about how a person who's done wrong can atone, can kind of can kind of atone, make up for make amends and retain some continuity between their life before and after the mistake. She's saying we live in a, in a society that demands atonement. You've got to pay for your sins. You've got to pay for what you've done. But there's no path to forgiveness, right? I, I stumbled upon uh, an article this week. I thought it was interesting. It's not a, not a Christian writer. And it's a, it's a secular kind of outlet that's kind of aimed at maybe my generation, and millennials and stuff. And they were kind of grappling with this idea of forgiveness. And I just thought it was interesting. And they were kind of talking at a high level about almost these public ideas of, of forgiveness when someone at a public level kind of fails and how are we supposed to forgive them and they ask for forgiveness. Like, how does it all play out? And I think the same thing plays out individually. This person's not a believer and while there's, there's kind of hints of truth in here, it's just interesting the way that it plays out. And this is kind of the cycle that they, they walk through. I want to show you this. So they almost just begin by wrestling with this idea of forgiveness, just wrestling with this, trying to assess kind of the state of the world and the culture. And they say this. It's kind of the title of the article. Everyone wants forgiveness, but no one is being forgiven. Like, we like the idea. The idea is, like, we should do that. That is something that would be good. But it, it, but when it gets into the nitty-gritty, into my life, I'm like, I don't know about how this plays out, right? And so this author kind of started wrestling with this idea. Like, who deserves this, right? The, almost the morality of it all, right? And kind of quotes kind of this, this expert in kind of the area. And they say this. When you think of someone being immoral... That shuts down the ability to have a conversation. It encourages dehumanization and seeing other people as the other rather than as people. And this happens when, when we're wronged, right? It says there are places where our sense of morality is so strong, our sense of, our sense of morality is so strong that we believe the other person uh, can't be redeemed. We don't believe that that person can be redeemed because, because of our, which it's interesting, right? We've been so wronged. That person's been so, so, so wronged. That in our, our sense of morality, like they, they can't be forgiven. They're not human. They, don't, they aren't deserving of it, right? And we, we wrestle with that, right? And then he kind of talked about this, this idea of, of apology. Well, does that person have to apologize? And is the apology true or is it just kind of image management? Are they just saying it? You know, is it just I'm apologizing because I got caught? Is that worthy of forgiveness or does there have to be an apology for forgiveness? They kind of wrestle with that. And then my favorite is they kind of begin to wrestle with this idea of grace, this idea of letting go and this, this concept of grace, which this is important. Listen to this. They say this. Most moral and spiritual authorities teach us that the cycle of repentance usually involves grace. And then they say grace. The act of allowing people room to be human and make mistakes while still loving them and valuing them might be the holiest, most precious concept in all this conversation. It's interesting. They say, but grace relies on some huge assumptions. They say grace relies on the fact that, that people mean well and that their intent is not to be hurtful and that they are capable of self-reflection and change. And of course, that we all possess equal shares of dignity and humanity. That's interesting. They're saying grace relies on the fact that the person actually didn't mean it wholly, that maybe just had a bad day, that they're actually a good person. It relies on that. That is interesting. Because in case it's not clear, as we see the gospel of grace, as we talk about Jesus week after week, that is not what grace is. 
That's grace isn't like they're not that's just being human. That's being civil. That's giving people the benefit of the doubt. Great grace is why we were still enemies, Christ died for us, right? But look at where the cycle goes. At the end of the article. At the end of the article it says this. And so we arrive back at the beginning of the cycle. We hang on to our anger, and all the anger puts this possibility of grace even further out of reach. Perhaps there's a perverse commonality in knowing that no matter what side we're on, we're all bad at this. And it's just interesting because we wrestle with this. How should I forgive? When should I forgive? What's the right apology? And what, how does grace play into this? And it kind of becomes this cycle where we're not sure how to break this cycle. And talk of forgiveness often brings up more questions than answers because we all have different experiences. We all have different stories. But for today, and you need to hear this for today, because this, 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 we're not, we're not looking at, at forgiveness as just some life coaching lessons. What we're looking at is the character of God. We're looking at the character of God, the forgiving God and his followers of Jesus. If God is a forgiving God, we have to grapple with what that means because these two things go hand in hand. We must run into the forgiving God if we are going to begin to map out and get an understanding of forgiveness. And unless we process, wrestle with, and learn how to forgive, we will not fully understand the forgiving God and his nature. Now, for the sake of today, if God is a forgiving God, now that by default tells us something about our default state, about our need, about our situation. If he's forgiving God, it's assuming that we have something that needs forgiven. And it begs the question, for the sake of today, what is being forgiven? What is being forgiven? And it says, in, this, in this passage, it says God, that he is forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. You could, other versions say iniquity, transgression, and sin. And what I want to do is I kind of want to just biopsy these things for a second. Because sometimes when we talk about sin, for some of you, you feel your sin very heavily. You, you, you feel like you can't approach God. You feel like you want to constantly make yourself pay. And you, you feel your weight of your sin. You feel it. Some of you are that way. And others of you, you're like, I, I'm not that bad. I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. And so what I want to do is just, when God is the forgiving God who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, I just want to take a, let's just scalpel that for a second. Take a look at that and hold that up to the light. This, this first word, wickedness or iniquity, is the word that we look at. It's this Hebrew word, avon, which is related to the Hebrew word ava, which is to be bent, right? That's this word, this be bent, that this wickedness, this iniquity is this idea of, of something to be bent, to be crooked, to be distorted, right? Iniquity. Uh, we, my son Camden, he's four, and you know, like young boy, they still, like love trains, right? Which I'm always like, what's up with the trains? And he he saw like we were at a stop, we were at a train crossing, and we saw this train, and he was just thought it was awesome. And then we went to my parents, and they have one of those, you know, like Christmas time electric trains that you kind of. I mean, you would have thought that he saw Jesus himself when he saw this train. Like, for, for the last couple, like, something needed to get fixed on it, so he couldn't play with it right away, but he got to see it. And for the next couple weeks, as my parents were getting it repaired, he told everybody, my grandma has a train that moves by itself. Like, we took him to the play place, and he's running around with kids, and we just hear his voice from up in the McDonald's play place. Did you know my grandma has a train that moves by itself? He loves this train. And so we were over at their house last week, and we were dropping him off, and they were going to play with this train, and we were trying, my dad got the little engine thing fixed, and we were trying to figure it out. And it, it sparks would be flying off this thing, and it would just keep coming off the track. 
I kind of looked at the track, fixed the track, kept coming off the track. One loop off, trying to fix it. One loop off, we're trying to figure it out. And because I'm the most handiest man in the planet, I realized, that was sarcasm, I realized, I like was looking at stuff and I looked at this train and I realized this train just ever so slightly, and we never really used this train, I don't know when this happened, it's, it was barely used, ever so slightly, one of the wheels was just ever so slightly bent. And so as this train went around, it would always inevitably go off the track, go off the track. And that's what often happens, we talk about sin and we're like, I'm not, I'm not that bad. Like I'm not, like it's not the wheel fell. I'm not that bad, right? But whether, whether it's two degrees or 45 degrees, if that wheel is bent, that train is coming off the track. And Jesus taught, Jesus amplifies this, right? The Old Testament law that God gives Israel has these specific things he calls them to do. They're heavy things for them as a, as a nation. And many, many of the Jewish people, we see the Pharisees, they thought that they did what they needed to do. They thought their wheels were straight. They're like, we did it. We are fine. We got it together. We are not sinful people. We are following what we're supposed to be following. And when Jesus gives a Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, in Matthew 5, we see Jesus amplifies this. He puts a magnifying glass to our lives. And he shows that we are bent. You see, Jesus says, you've, you've heard it preached if you do not commit adultery. But I say, if you even look at a woman, that I haven't cheated on my wife, I'm faithful to my wife, but if there's just that, you know, that one person that crossed my day, that, that one girl, that one guy at work, that I just, I just take a look. Just that, it's no big deal. I'm not talking to anybody, I'm not cheating on anybody, I just take a look. Just a little bent, right? I'm objectifying that person for my own pleasure. I'm being disloyal, disfaithful, just a little, just a little bent. Jesus says, you've heard, it, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say, don't, don't hate anybody. Don't hate anybody if you've committed murder in your own heart. We're like, I haven't killed anybody, right? I'm a nice guy. I'm, I'm, I'm nice. I'm cordial, right? But if I hold disdain in my heart, if I rob that person of little dignity, of little humanity, I'm not murdering anybody, but I'm just bent a little bit because I have this disdain towards that person, towards those people. Harvest bitterness in my heart. You know, I'm not, I'm not a liar. I'm not like outlying people, I'm not deceit, ripping off people, right? But if I just bend the truth a little bit, like, oh, I didn't pay that in taxes. Like, that's not exactly what happened. I just bend that truth a little bit. I'm distorting what truth actually is. You know, we have greed within our hearts and it's like, man, there's, there's some greedy people. Their whole life is trying to get more and more. The 1%, I'm not like that, but like, I could use a little bit more and I just want to keep a little bit more of that to myself. And I, I, I'm just a little bent in everything in the world I start to see is what's for me. This stuff is for me. What can I, what can I get? And what happens? If iniquity is just being bent, what happens is in our bentness, we, we begin to create our own standard of what is actually right. Instead of straight on being what is actually holy and right and good, our little bentness by two degrees, now that becomes the standard of what is actually good. In our my wife and I's house, my family's house, we, we love our house. We love the place. It's, I think it was built like late 1800s, early 1900s. I'm not sure there's a right angle in the place, right? I was putting on cabinet handles the other day and I'm like, I got it. I think it's just, I eyeball everything. I think it's just right and I step back and it looks off. I think it's because I'm standing on a floor that's not equal, right? Or sometimes I, I'm not very good at getting out the old measuring tape or the, the level. I just kind of eyeball things and then I base every, you know, like I'll hang up a picture, base those pictures off that picture, stand back and everything's kind of like this. Why? Because I'm basing it off my measure of what is good because it's bent just a little bit. In, in our iniquity, 
in our bentness. We create our own version of what is true. And when we do that, we think we're doing pretty okay because we compare ourselves, we've kind of recalibrated what is right, and we create our own version of what is good and true and beautiful. The second thing that we see that we're, that God is the forgiving God is of, of, of rebellion, of transgression. This is this, this Hebrew word, pasha. Can you say that? Pasha, right? And this word, it invokes, it involves how our brokenness impacts relationships. That pasha is how we wrong someone that we are in relationship with, right? That I can, I can steal from you, I can, or I can steal from someone, I can harm someone, I can, I can lie to someone, and that might make me dishonest, that might make me a thief, that might make me mean. But if I lie, if I steal, or if I harm a friend, someone I walk with, someone I'm in relationship with, I've pashawed against them because it's a relational thing that I've broken. I've broken trust. I've broken relationship. I've sinned against someone I'm in relationship with. And we all know. And maybe this is why you struggle with this conversation. Is that relational hurt is greater. And the closer the relationship, the more the hurt, right? In anger, if I said something to the fast food worker, I feel bad about it, but it's different. I'm going to carry it different than if I say something to my spouse, right? Like if I break a promise to my barber, you're like, I sorry I missed my appointment. That's different than breaking a promise to my kid, right? Because there's this relational component. And you know the truth, right? It's different when you're when someone in your relationship with stabs you in the back, lies to you, lets you down, cheats on you, because it's this relational thing. That's transgression. It's against someone else. That's what this word captures is the relational damage done by sin. And there is a, there, there is, we know when we are, when we are hurt by someone that we deeply care about. That's why this conversation is hard. But there, we also know that there is a unique pain when we know that we have transgressed someone else, when we have hurt someone else that we are in relationship with. And in Genesis 3, when we see Adam and Eve, we see this transgression, we see this sin when they turn their backs on God and want to do it for themselves because they violated trust with God. And what we see when we violate, when we trespass against God, break a relationship with God, it is never just an us and God thing. It always has, the transgression here always plays out here. We see Adam and Eve, they transgress against God, but then they hide from one another. We know this to be true because these two things live in tandem. Our relationship with God and our relationship with people, especially those closest to us, are always intertwined. This is why Jesus says in the New Testament, the whole law can be summed up with these two commands. Love God and love people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These things are inherently tied together because when we pasha, when we transgress, rebel against God, we are also transgressing against people because sin does not happen in a vacuum. My bentness to take a look, my bentness to have hatred in my heart towards someone else, my bentness to lie, my bent, my bent to kind of just take a little bit more for myself always has relational impact. When, when King David sins, when he looks at Bathsheba, makes her his wife, kills her husband. In Psalm 51.4, he's repenting, he's praying. He says to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. And you're like, that's not true. Your eye is dead. And you sinned against, what? There's, how do you say you only sinned against God? Because these things are so tightly wound that my, my transgression against God always has relational impact. Transgression, rebellion, and sin. And the, the last word we see Wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This word sin and its related kind of terms are used 786 times throughout the, the, the NIV translation of the Bible. 
And we see sin showing up in so many ways. And this word for sin is this Hebrew word, kata. And you might have heard this before, but it means to miss the mark, to miss the goal. And maybe you've heard that before, maybe you haven't heard that before. And if we're just being honest, that doesn't sound like that big of a deal, right? Like it, what it sounds like is like, so I got a B instead of an A, right? Like I threw a dart and I just a little south of the bullseye, like doesn't feel like that's that big of a deal. But I think that's a misunderstanding of a couple things. I think first it's a misunderstanding of what, of who we are and why we are here and what we were created for and what wholeness actually is and what the consequences and what the effects of, of, of sin, of what actually missing the mark actually are. Because the, the mark that has been missed, the mark, the goal of our existence, the purpose of why, why mankind was created, we go back to Genesis chapter one, is to perpetuate God's goodness in the world. We are, we are image bearers of God. That's how he has created us. We are made in the image of God to represent, to communicate, to be his representatives in the earth, to rule alongside with him, to perpetuate the goodness in the world, to magnify his holiness and goodness as we partner with him for the sake of the world. And in, in our pride and in our desire to do it ourselves, we relied on ourselves instead of him and, and sin entered this picture. Now, instead of being perpetuators of life and of truth, and of beauty, and of abundance, and of love, and of grace, and of selflessness. We have missed the mark. We have failed to do what, what we were created to do. Don't mishear me and say, we're failing to be our best selves. No, because we define what our best selves is for ourselves. We fail to be who God has created us to be, what his standard is. What, what he ha- He's like, I need you to do this with me. We have fallen short of that. And now instead of perpetuating all that is good, we've missed the mark, and we become perpetuators of death and of greed and of selfishness, of self-protection, of half-truths and of hate. And all this is just falling short of what is good. And what happens is if we think that following Jesus and being God Im- God's imagers, we think it's more like, like, like horseshoes than life-saving surgery, right? Like in college, you, you go through college and my undergrad and you take these classes and you're like, what do I got to do to get out of this class? My first, my first test was always like a, First homework assignment, first exam was always just like, a, let's let's see what we can do to get by, right? Like I'm I'm fine with a B in this random random like English class, right? Like I missed them, I didn't get an A, but we're doing fine, right? But if you're like doctors, like your body is full of poison and this poison will kill you. But we got out, we got out like a it's like a B when we kind of did the surgery. You're like, I do not like that, right? Like if the doctor's like, we got most of that life killing thing out of you. That you missed the mark, doc. I am still going to die, right? Like, no one wants to hear the doctor come out and be like, well, it's close enough, right? You're like, no, because you're missing the mark, right? Or I can guess that, you know, you get married and you're like, listen, I used to sleep around. I used to have 10 girlfriends. And now that I'm, I'm getting married, I've only got two. You're like, no, you've missed the mark because we were created to have this relationship and now you're missing the mark isn't just getting a B and not loving me as much as you should. Now you're missing the mark is, is deceit and lying and adultery. That's what it is. Like, th- this, is, this is not a horseshoes and hand grenade situation. That is not what this is. But missing the mark is failing to live up to the holiness of who God has called us to live into. And sometimes that feels abstract. 
But when we go back to Genesis and what Jesus reinstitutes for us as we follow him into his kingdom is to, to, to perpetuate what is true about him. And because we have missed the mark, because sin now reigns in this world, I don't have to tell you this, that division and murders and lie and bigotry and pornography and child labor and wars and abuse and deceit and greed, the list never ends that those things are prevalent because the mark that God has created for us has been missed and it's a zero-sum game. But this, this, this mark that God has created that's been missed, it's distorted, now lives within our blood in Romans 5.12. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way, death came to all people, because all have sinned. I say this every time we talk about sin, and I feel like we end up talking about this a lot, which we need to. You are not, you are not a sinner because you did a couple things that weren't, weren't great. The reason we did a couple things that weren't great is because we're sinners. Because we have missed the mark. And this plays out time and time again. So what is being forgiven? Us missing, missing the goal, distorting what is good, violating trust. And Paul kind of echoes the sentiment when he's looking at his own self in Romans 7. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? We think about this cycle. If, if we take a look at what we're being forgiven of, there's this question of how, how do we break this cycle? This cycle, when we talk about forgiveness, whether it's forgiving ourselves, forgiving another, we swing back to that. How do we break this cycle? If these things are what are at play within us and within the world, and this is all these things, these, this bentness, these relational sins, missing the mark, these, we perpetuate these things, and these things are perpetuated against us, and we try to figure it out. Did they or they apology? Were they apologize enough? Did we, did we give them enough of grace? How much grace should we give? Who's deserving of this? As we continue to be in the cycle, if, if we judge who deserves forgiveness and who doesn't, we decide how far grace extends. If we set the mark, if the apology is sufficient, where does it end? How do we move forward? And what we, what we see is that we need someone to break the cycle. We need someone to step in and to break the cycle. And when we see in this passage that God is the forgiving God, that, that word forgiving is this word nasah. It's this word nasah that is as to lift up or to carry. Somebody has to absorb the debt. What we're trying to figure out is we're trying to figure out who's going to pay for this. That's what we're trying to figure out. And if that person's not going to pay for it, I ain't going to pay for it. Who's going to pay for this? And what we see in the gospel, what we see in the story of God from cover to cover is that God doesn't just forgive here and forgive there and forgive there. It's part of who he is. God is the forgiving God. That he breaks the cycle. He enters the picture. These patterns of wickedness and rebellion and sin. And if forgiveness is going to happen, someone has to absorb the debt. And God breaks into the cycle. Who can step, if you have wronged me, or if I have wronged you, who can step into that equation and say, you are forgiven, or you're forgiven? You're like, what, what are you doing here? This is between us. The only person who can do that is first off, someone who has done nothing wrong. Someone whose account is totally clear, because who are you to say we're forgiven if you've got your own stuff going on? So that person must be sinless. That person's got to be God. Who has the power to forgive sins, Jesus says. But God alone. Who can step into the situation? Who, but and, if, and if 
If this word, if Nasa is to carry, to bear up, who is going to carry it? My friends, so we head into Easter season in a couple weeks. That is who God is. In Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah, Old Testament, God, God, God speaks through Isaiah to the people who have rebelled, who have transgressed, who are full of iniquity, who are full of sin, that they have turned their backs on God, turned their backs on one another. We see this perpetuate. Isaiah is communicating to his people, and there's this prophecy where he points to this suffering servant. This, this, this person who is going to come, who is going to break the cycle. In Isaiah 53, we see this. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. But surely he... He took up, he bore our suffering, took up our pain. We considered him punished by God, stricken by God, afflicted by God. But he was pierced for our transgressions, for the relational pain that we've caused between God and others. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, for our wickedness, for our bentness. He was crushed for ours. By his wounds, we are healed. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. For we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own ways that not the truth. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity, the bentness of us all. We've all gone our own way. We've all created our own standards of what is right. And the iniquity of all of us that we all carry has been put on Christ. He was oppressed, afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. He did not open his mouth. And you jump to the end of this passage. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Somebody's got to absorb the debt. And in the gospel of Jesus, the forgiving God points to and shows up in the person of Christ who bears our iniquities, who bears our sin. The ultimate, the ultimate one that we have transgressed against the ultimate one that we have rebelled against, that we have missed the mark of, that we are bent for what they've called us to do, is, is the Lord, is, is God, is Yahweh. That's the primary one that we, have, that we have transgressed against. And yet he, he has made payment. He has broken the cycle and he has bore our sin on the cross. And this means a couple things for us. This means a couple things for us, and I, I want to hit this quickly. I know we can't hit everything in this conversation today, but as we respond to the forgiving God, the God who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, as we process this, we, we have to begin with him. And this is what I mean. Today's message isn't about forgiveness. It's about the character of God. And many of you, as we talk about this, you have a specific situation in mind, a specific person whose face comes to your, your mind, a certain weight on your heart. Some of you may not, but you will. And we, we begin this conversation by looking at that situation, by holding our hurt, which, which for some of you, I can't even imagine what that is. And I want to acknowledge that. But that's, that's where we start. And then we see this forgiving God 
But we start here. We say, I'm not, I'm not sure where to put the forgiving God into this situation. But we have to start with him. We have to start with the God who is the, the God who is the storm on the mountainside, the God who is relational, the God who is first and foremost compassionate and gracious, the God who is slow to anger, the God who is abounding in love and faithfulness, the God who forgives, and what we'll look at next week, the God who is also just, that God. We have to hold our pain up to that God. My son Camden, his favorite Bible story, he gets it kind of backwards, is, is when Jesus walks on the water and calls Peter to step out and walk with him. And every time Camden tells the story, he says that Peter's walking on the water and Jesus starts to sink. I'm like, isn't this all of us, right? This is how we all are. But, but in the story, they see Jesus walking on the water and they're scared. The story, like Jesus is a ghost. There's, you know, it's crazy. And Jesus invites Peter. He says, come out on the boat. And Peter, as he keeps his eyes, first and foremost, fixed on Jesus, he walks on the water. But as he starts to see, he's like, all right, this is crazy. The waves are, are crashing and he starts to see the reality of the situation. He starts to take his eyes off Jesus and look at the situation. He starts to sink. But as he keeps his eyes fixed on Jesus, he stays on top of the water. We, we got to begin with him. We got to begin with seeing the God and the perspective of who he is, our own need of wickedness, rebellion, and sin that needs forgiven. We got to start there. Let's say this, in light, in light of the gospel, in light of the forgiving God, in light of that, if we begin to even just taste the magnitude of, of the forgiveness that we've been offered, the forgiveness of the gospel, forgiveness becomes the reasonable response. And I know that hits you weird. Becomes the reasonable response. We, we've hit this recently. I don't want to uh, belabor this, but Jesus tells a parable of the unforgiving debtor tells a parable of this, this master, this king, who is collecting the debts that, that are owed to him. And he brings this man to him, Jesus says. It's a story Jesus is telling. He brings one of his servants to him, who has cost him like literally billions of dollars is how it's translated. The, the, the number that this man owes to his master is, it's just a silly number. And so he's going to take the man and all of his goods and his family and put him in prison. And the man pleads with him, please forgive me. Please let me be free of my sin or of my debt. And he, he does. The, the master forgives him and lets him go free. Of, of bill, bill, just an enormous rate that he owes this master, he, he lets him go. And in the parable. I don't have an answer for that. Oh, come on, Siri. I'm just getting to the good part. And in, in, in the parable, this guy who's just been forgiven, this immense debt goes out the door. And he goes to someone who owed him a couple hundred bucks. And he says, I want my money. And this guy is like, I don't have your money. And he says, he grabs him by the throat and he demands his money. And this, this story, this, the, the original, the original uh, king, master who has forgiven this man, hears about this story. Says, you, you haven't got this. Put you back into prison. Be tortured. You haven't got this. It, we hear that story and we hear, man, this guy's been forgiven that much. And he goes and this small amount, he chokes this guy and demands this. You're like... That seems silly. It seems unreasonable. In no way, in no way am I minimizing your hurt or your pain. In no way. But in light of the forgiving God and how we have been forgiven, it becomes, it becomes reasonable. I'm not saying easy. 
when we step back, we start when we see this perspective, like it starts to make more sense. But the challenge, the challenge is getting a hold of the weight of how we've been forgiven. That's where that's where the challenge is. That's why some of you, you feel that weight and you can't forgive yourself. Right? There's a, a man, his name is Miroslav Volf. He says this, he says, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and exclude myself from the community of sinners. That we sometimes, sometimes we don't see the weight of our own sin. We don't want to see the humanity in the person that's wronged us. In the gospel, the forgiving God puts all those things in perspective because we all are in need of the forgiveness of our wickedness, our rebellion, and our sin. And the last thing for the sake of today I would say that I'd say is this is that forgiveness becomes our response to his deliverance. Forgiveness becomes our response to his deliverance. Is in the story of the scriptures, these people that, that God is making this covenant with in Exodus, the, the Israelite people that, that have constantly turned their back, constantly transgressed against him, full of wickedness and sin and rebellion. We see that play out time and time and time and time again. That as they wander, as they eventually become a people, he gives them a land, gives them the law that this is how you are supposed to relate to me. This is how you are supposed to interact with me. And they tell the story through generation through generation and God constantly reminds them of the way that they were delivered from Egypt. We talked about this week one, that God delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt. That's how the story starts. He delivers them. He rescues his people, then gives them the law. He doesn't give them the law and say, if you do these things, then I'll deliver you. He says, I've delivered you, and now this is what it looks like to live in a relationship as a people. But he constantly circles back to this deliverance from Egypt. Just reading this week, there's a, there's a section where he's kind of giving his people kind of these regulations of forgiving debts and freeing servants and kind of helping the poor. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. It's one of these laws he's given his people. And in there, in Deuteronomy 15, 15, he says, he's kind of saying there's these, there's these seven-year cycles Every seven years, forgive these debts. For seven years, set these servants free, like this, this cycle. And, he's, and he acknowledges it to be hard for some of you, but you need to do this. You need to be, you need to be lavish with your gifts to them and your love to them. Why? Why? But the, why? Why are seven years? He says, because you need to remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord God redeemed you. That is why I give this command today. He's saying, I want, I want every seven years, I want you to free your servants. I want you to free your debts. I want you to, to redeem the poor in this way every seven years. Why? Because don't forget that I have delivered you. Because our tendency is always to see the debt that's been against us and not see the debt that we owe. And for his followers of Jesus, this story, that the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, the story of God, these people were shaped by their deliverance, by their rescue. It was it's the, it, it is the story that just kind of, we in our culture, like we're, the Constitution, the forefathers, it like shapes the, our like American like concept of everything, right? That the, the, the deliverance from Egypt was what shaped their whole, their whole outlook as a people. And for as followers of Jesus, the cross becomes our Exodus story. It becomes our deliverance. We always circle back. We always circle back to God's kindness for us. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Always circle back to the cross. This, this isn't an easy conversation, I get it. But as we unpack the character of God, 
we have to wrestle with forgiveness because God is a forgiving God. We wrestle with forgiveness. When we wrestle with the weight of our wickedness and rebellion and sin, and in light of that, we see God in Christ, the servant who has suffered, who has carried those things in our place and suffered the punishment for us, that he absorbed the debt for us. Can you pray with me uh, today? And as we pray, I simply, I just want to pray Psalm 103 over us. I just want to pray Psalm 103. That, Lord, you are compassionate, that you are gracious, that you are slow to anger, that you are abounding in love, Lord. That though we have sinned, though we carry wickedness and rebellion and sin, you will not always accuse. You don't harbor this anger against us. You don't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities, towards our bentness. But Lord, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your love for us, that you have demonstrated your love for us at the cross, that you, you repay us according to what Jesus has done for us, and that in Christ, through the cross, you have separated these things as far as the east from the west, that you have removed our transgressions from us. That when you see us, Lord, you see us as you see Christ because you've separated our sins, separated our iniquities, separated our transgressions from our identity. And now we live in wholeness with you. And as a father has compassion on his children, Lord, you have compassion on us for you know, you know our weakness, you know our sin, and you have compassion on us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would feel the weight of the forgiveness that you offer us. That you would help us to forgive ourselves to begin to grapple with forgiveness in the hardest areas because we want to bear the name of Christ. We want to be your ambassadors. We want to represent the God who is forgiving. So Lord, help us to forgive. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.